Welcome to Daring Daring 2, a podcast that finds out how CEOs and entrepreneurs navigate today's business world. The conventions they're breaking, the challenges they faced, and the decisions that they've made. And lastly, just what makes them different. Hi, well, I'm delighted today to do my first podcast in Atlanta. Joining me today on this first podcast is Jen Graham. And you are the CEO of Civic Dinners, is that right? That's right. I think we're going to have a really great conversation today because these podcasts are all about people that are daring too. And having read a bit about you and seen your website and what your company is trying to do, there is no doubt in my mind that you are daring to do something that is not only very different, but is breaking the bounds of what many people won't even be thinking about today. So I think you're going to bring some really interesting perspective. So let's start, Jen. Let's talk a little bit about you. I read about you at college. There you were, a business major, like hitting it out of the park. And then you had, I guess, like an aha moment. I think you use the word aha Mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, And you describe it as like kind of thinking like the video game has come to an end and you've kind of won and you're thinking about, well, what now? What do I do now? So that you're on a track to go, you know, join the corporate world, do everything that, that's textbook in terms of a career. And it sounds like you made a bit of a transition from that. Did you? Mm-hmm. I did. I had always been a closet designer my whole life, but I never admitted it to anyone or, or thought it was an actual legit career. I had assumed that anyone who went into the art world or the artistic space would end up, you know, making quilts, living in a trailer with nine cats. So I had And do you, do you have a trailer and no, nine cats? No. Okay, good. No. <laughs> and so I had kind of, um, always thought that I would end up being some kind of professional, right? Uh, to have something that my parents would be proud of, that I could have a decent living and earning earn a wage. But this love for design and and uh, just aesthetics really started to tug at me when I discovered graphic design. It was the senior year, second semester of my college at UNC. And I had snuck into a couple different uh, communications courses studying uh, that were all about website design and logo design and identity and was just blown away about the power of using design to actually change people's behavior. And so I actually had, it was a network journalism networking night at the at the College of Journalism at UNC that I snuck into. I wasn't actually allowed. It was only for journalism majors, but I found my way in and I heard this um, amazing guy speak about how he, at age 30, was a um, was basically and commercial real estate and would use the story of um, would tell the story of his warehouses through the perspective of a ghost and use his creativity to really to sell warehouses but then a an ad agency in New York got a hold of it and was like oh my gosh this is brilliant um, perspective are you in design do you want to go in design you should so we sent him to the school in Atlanta called Portfolio Center where he learned the art of storytelling, the art of graphic design and identity, where he then went after graduating, moved to New York City, ended up working in the agencies, won a ton of awards, then moved back to Chapel Hill and started his own company that was doing some incredible grassroots uh, guerrilla marketing work. So first, the lesson to me was, well, it's not too late. You're, it's not like you're set your course and you've got to continue the way you're going. You can always change. And he had been 10 years older than me when he had changed his career and gone back to school. And the second thing was like, wow, there's really power in design to actually not just 
persuade people to buy things, but actually persuade people to think differently. And in that moment, I had decided in my head, I'm going to go to a portfolio center in Atlanta. Had no idea, didn't know how to tell my parents or my mom or my dad uh, that, hey guys, I just graduated, but going back to art school. But when I told them, they were like, what took you so long? So they already knew. They already knew. And it just had taken me that long to finally give in to the natural talent or desires that I had always been feeling. So I came down to Atlanta, uh, fell in love with just the art of storytelling, design, design thinking, um, where there is no rule book. There is no curriculum. There's no case study. There's no best uh, example. You're given a project to create an identity for a company that doesn't exist. And you're told to create a world that doesn't exist that no one can live without. And so it just, your mind explodes and you start, start, you dive into research and you uncover the problems and the real challenge. You talk to people, you understand the root causes, and then you design solutions that fit those needs. And so um, it really opened my eyes to human-centered design and the need for that, the need for complex approaches to different problem solving that isn't taught in business school and it should be. And it seems like it's a really important thing today. If I look at businesses today and how they are trying to basically build cultures that are all inclusive, mm-hmm. um, appeal to customers or clients or stakeholders around what they're doing and there needs to be, they're recognizing there needs to be a higher purpose than that. Yeah. That storytelling is really important in it terms is. of signaling their differentiation it seems like you've taken it to a to a next another level in some ways because actually what you're doing today in terms of what civic dinners is which you know i think people are going to be curious to know what that is Mm -hmm. i'm going to ask you about that but you describe yourself right as a social innovator um designer a social innovation designer i go wow that sounds so cool can i be one of those like what does that look like i haven't seen that job description yet how do i find that job but actually it 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 sort of seems like it connects some of the things that you've been talking about the social piece of like understanding what people want and talking to people Mm -hmm. the innovation piece about thinking very differently that there are no rule books and then this design concept of actually producing solutions that mm. that matter. So what is a social innovation designer? Please I, tell me. I think you just described it. Um to be honest, I made it up. There is no there was no job description about it, but it in essence it takes the core pieces of what I care most about. So one is social, meaning that we are social humans and social beings and we need love. We need that um, direct connection to people. Um, And also in the social impact areas, we need to be thinking about more than just profit. We need to be thinking about the impact that business has on society and on the environment and the longevity of our of our actual species. Um, so the humanity element, the innovation, exactly that. So social innovation, meaning coming at a problem, uh, not with an immediate solution. So not parachuting in an existing solution and expecting it to work, but really looking internally, uh, analyzing it and being able to tweak and modify. And the design part is exactly that. It's part of, there's, I, as a creator and as a natural kind of design thinker, it's it, there are no templates to work with so we have to design new processes methodologies we have to design how we approach and how we even tell the story so the design i feel like is um 
there's there's no better other other word for it. It's more way more than graphic design. It's but it's actual systems design and the processes and and just kind of how we approach um, problem solving in today's world. Well, problem solving is a big deal, right? Because we got a lot of problems in the world. Oh, yeah. I wish we didn't, but we do. Um, and and civic dinners was really been. I guess put together and formulated with this vision and this idea of bringing civic engagement to a different level. You describe civic engagement as needing to be fun, meaningful, and and interesting and engaging. And I'm I'm sure there are other words that you use to describe it. But I bet if I went out on the street today, or in fact in this studio that we're in today, and asked ten people, tell me what you think civic engagement is. Mm. Do you think they'd know? No. They probably think it's going to their local neighborhood association meeting or community meeting or maybe filling out a, a census survey, perhaps, or voting. Some people think it's um, their rep- their civic engagement is showing up at the polls, but it's way more than that. And I think um, civic engagement, like our whole our whole country and many other countries are, are built on the notion of democracy, but that in order for a functioning democracy to be healthy, it's dependent upon people to be educated on the issues and to be uh, knowledgeable about not just one-sided um, arguments, but fully understanding the complexity of the challenges and how connected and interrelated so many of the issues are. You can't talk about transportation without talking about education or property taxes mm-hmm. or property itself or affordable housing is part of that. And and then, um, and so what? What we're trying to do is create, make make civic engagement easier because a lot of people want to be involved and in they care about their city, but they just don't know what step to take or how like, how to actually yeah make that first step. Um, and so what we've done with civic dinners is make it fun, make it fun. How did and you social. how did you decide that that was the path that you wanted to do? There must have been something that triggered it that said you know what, I've done all this design work, I've worked for some big companies, I've done the storytelling, I've done the design thinking, but there's a there's a bigger purpose for me in my life. It sounds like that there was a bigger purpose that some kind of hit you in the face, that got you going into, <laughs> into civic dinners. So tell, tell, yeah. tell the audience what that is, because, you know, often people want to follow their passion and their dreams, but don't do it. So what was your kind of daring to moment, if you yeah. like? Um, well, I, a lot of people find their calling. I, I fell into mine. So literally on my way to work, I hit a parallel grate and it, so you did literally, literally fall, into, fall it. into it. And it, um, my front wheel got stuck and my bike kept, my bike stopped and I kept going. So I supermaned over the bike. Um, thankfully I was okay. There were no cars behind me, but I had a, a bloody nose and a broken arm. And, um, but from that experience, I, Immediately, my first instinct was, this shouldn't be here. This is illegal. And I emailed the entire communications arm of the mayor's office because I didn't know who else to reach out to. Who who do you talk to in that situation? And so I um, emailed them. I said, I took photos. I said, you need to fix this right away. And they did within 48 hours. They had sent uh, even photos to prove it. Uh, so I was feeling pretty good. Um, the first little bit of a civic win, I got in touch with the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition and found out there were 200 other parallel grates just like that that had been reported but not fixed. So I put pressure on them, said, please fix these. Um, uh, I'm also going to be on the media, and so please fix these. <laughs> so that probably helped. <laughs> that did help because um, I've uh, contacted the commuter dude of Atlanta and said, hey, um, they wanted to do a story on it. Uh, and then when, when they did the story, it was embarrassing. I was called the two-wheeled tumble. 
They made a big deal about that had me stare longingly at the grate and dramatized with bloody nose and dangling arms. She escaped from the lane, you know, what media does. They like to dramatize things. But um, at the end, though, the commuter dude said, well, good job, Jen. You fixed these parallel grates. That's awesome. But Atlanta's not a bicycle-friendly city. I wish it was, but it's not. And at that moment, I was furious. I was, first of all, he used my story uh, of fixing something to then twist it to support the same narrative that has been told that Atlanta's not bike friendly. I wish it was, but it's not. So therefore it was okay. And that it was okay. Saying it was okay not to change. Exactly. He was reinforcing the status quo. And I, my response to that was, oh no, (laughs) get ready because I'm about to pour every ounce of everything that I've ever learned into making Atlanta more bike friendly, just to prove you wrong, that this is not okay. The status quo is not okay. That we can't let people um, who want alternative modes of transportation to to risk their lives to get from home to work. And a lot of people who aren't, it was an equity issue for me. It was like, yes, I have the means to have a car and get to work. But for those that don't, that's not okay. And the transportation is not okay. Um, the lack of transportation infrastructure is not okay. And in that moment, I decided, I went to the back to the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. I said, I've got skills in design, organizing, anything. What, do you, what can I do to help make Atlanta more bike friendly? And that's when she said, we got this project called the Atlanta Streets Alive. It just started. It's on Edgewood. We've got maybe 5,000 people that have come out, but it's it's an open streets event where they close the, the car, they close the streets to cars and open them to people where anybody can come out. They ride their bikes, they scooter, they cartwheel, they Zumba, they yoga, they do whatever they want to do in the street for four hours. It's a temporary experience. And my mind was blown. I got to experience one. And it was exactly what my design teacher had taught me. She said, you know, your role as a designer is to create a world that doesn't exist that no one can live without. And if you can I for a that. moment... If you can, for a moment, just create that world, allow people to experience it, and then say, well, why can't we have more of this more often? And so that's what we did with Atlanta Streets Alive. Uh, I helped rebrand it, reorganize it. We gave it like human-powered amusement. We made it fun. We had the circus theme going on. We literally brought the circus to the streets. We had partnerships with the local amazing organizations on the ground to make it so whimsical so people could feel like they're a kid again and go out and experience the streets. And then that has grown from the first 5,000 to 15,000 to 20,000 to 60,000 to hundred now 140,000 people wow. come out three times a year to Atlanta Streets Alive. It's the largest one in the country. And it's how I met my husband. I was speaking at a conference in LA on behalf of the Land Bicycle Coalition and discovered there was a gentleman who was all about making the world more bike friendly. Um, and so I also stalked him and got, <laughs> brought him to Atlanta. <laughs> so look, guys, if you're listening, not only is it a really good thing to do, not only is it creating, I guess, sort of inclusion in mm-hmm. a way and equality yeah. and, and making the streets sort of free for people to be able to move around, meet other people. Yes. It's also potentially a good way to meet other exactly. people, right? So, well, that's so a, there's, yeah. there's the, you know, there's a, there's an added benefit on it. And most of all, it's environmentally friendly, yes. right? Which in today's world has to be important. We have yes. to be thinking about 
um, the environment. And, and I get the sense that civic dinners in terms of the organisation is sort of building on on that. Is, yes. that. is that the case? Yes. So what we learned from, what I learned from the, the success of the Atlanta Streets Alive was that we gave people a role to play. You, you could just show up. You could just, one thing is just come participate. The second level is you could host a an, an activity. So we got engaged over hundred, hundreds of different partners from yoga studios to Zumba instructors to any kind of organization, the Beltline, to help activate and provide an activity that had to be somehow physical activity physically active during on the street on the route whether it's three miles or eight miles they would have a location so we gave plenty of opportunities for actually to participate and to activate and that created a sense of ownership and love that it became the the atlanta's most beloved community event it was free it was open people could participate for free there was no charge to be like part of it um and and that and that it was fun we even had um we would have a bicycle parade where people would dress up and into costume and just make it fun and create a community event. So what I learned from that was make it fun, make it social and make it meaningful. The fact that it's been meaningful is, is how that it's actually helped raise the profile of the Atlanta bicycle coalition. Uh, They have a seat at the table. They've hosted candidate forms for the mayors. They've helped double the amount of bicycle lanes. The Atlanta the city of Atlanta has, and they've they even raised funds to get a chief bicycle officer. Wow! Because of it, and so they are, they're really able to harness the energy that comes from these big events to actually improve policy change and improve bike infrastructure, which at the end of the day is what what the whole point is. And do you think that you know some of the lessons that were learned from that are actually applicable to business today? I mean, yes. if I think about all the businesses that I work with and their their real desire to one sort of engage their workforce into coming up with solutions and ideas and feeling that they're part of of a company today, which I think is particularly important when we've got five generations working together mm-hmm. um, in the same workplace, but also in terms of the expectations of their customers and clients. How, yes. how would you make the parallel sort of like oh connection between that? Well, where do I start? Well, um, it's just that cities, people look to cities um, as as if they can solve everything on their own. Um, but in, in actuality, companies, especially local companies, play a huge role because they have, they hold the employee base and have the, honestly, usually a most, the most diverse audience. They're right there sitting with them from nine to five every day and an opportunity to engage them in civic and social issues at, within the local level. Um, but also customers are, are demanding and they're expecting more of companies. Uh, it's true where, the, especially millennials, which are now the largest workforce in the country, the world. Um, Don't and, you want to be one? I want to be one. <laughs> I am one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> On you the are. Front end, you are. Very, very front end. <laughs> but uh, what do they call that? Like yeah, mature millennials. But, yeah. um, but what what I've learned is that we, we millennials crave um companies that actually take a stand for something and if you're not taking a stand for something people will find out we're in, we live in the transparent world where we've got the smartphones at our fingertips the world is at our fingertips we can look up a company and know where they stand on certain issues yeah. and if they don't align with our values we quickly have other options and and shop elsewhere or buy or partner with other organizations that support our values so it's so important for companies to to they can't just hide behind this and this uh, agnostic uh, role anymore um, or, or hide behind any any opaque, um, what am I trying to say, curtain. Yeah, so <laughs> the trying to, like, just giving the vanilla kind of view yeah. of it, right, without right. actually 
really having a say yeah. in what they're supposed to stand for. I exactly. think that's very true. And especially now that social issues are creeping into the workforce environment more and more from the Black Lives Matter to the Me Too movement, you can't ignore these topics. And if you do, you're going to, you're going to appear very outdated and very out of touch with reality. So giving, giving companies, uh, the tools to be able to have these meaningful conversations is crucial. Um, whether they're starting them on um, having conversations on race or internally or even on gender and identity, LGBTQ, and how, how these a lot of companies are struggling with exactly how do you create an inclusive culture? And cities are having the same struggle as well. And so are nonprofits. And how do we how do we make sure everybody feels in, invited and engaged in in their workplace and, and workspace so that they feel like their best ideas can be heard and that it improves the ultimate bottom line. And so Civic Din sounds like it's trying to do that, right? It's trying to get that social engagement of people within mm-hmm. the community to actually help shape the community and the cities that they that they want. Yes. Um, tell us about some of the the successes of what you've had since you started that and, and also yeah. maybe some of the lows. Like have you had any lows where you've gone like, what did I do this for? Like, where did I get this crazy idea? Oh, daily. <laughs> um, so, well, where do I start? Um, well, so first, a civic dinner, the the model um, is so simple. And we've tried to boil it and simplify it down to really a recipe. So you have a host, six to ten guests of different backgrounds or perspectives. Could be race, could be gender, could be identity. You, as the host, get to help curate it or just have it available up on the platform for random people to sign up. And then you get three big questions, which we provide the host guide on a specific topic, whether that's bridging the racial divide, the voice of women or the lovable city. And, and then we have the, the only rules are it's equal time to share with one voice at a time. So that you walk through the questions that are provided and, and share. And so the format is, is flexible to be used for a broad different number of topics, but also different size events. So we've had everything from small, group conversations from six to ten people in people's homes or in restaurants or in pubs or office spaces during brown bag lunch um, or like large conferences. We've had over 300 people participate in a civic dinner during an aging conference event uh, in partnership with the Atlanta uh, Regional Commission. And phenomenal as long as you have at least a, um, you know, a person who's at the table that's able to help facilitate and guide and keep just conversation on track mm-hmm. uh, and on time. But the question and the hard work has already been done as far as creating the desired um, flow. And, and then what we've had, we just two weeks ago had a conversation within Coca-Cola all around um, as part of their launch of Unlabeled. Mm-hmm. And so imagine the world's most recognizable brand removing their label from their Coke cans to start a conversation no about way. labels. Wow. Yes, way. Um, so cool. And we were so excited to be involved and engage in this conversation to help them really frame how do we have a conversation about labels. Where do they come from? How do we, which ones have we been labeled? Do they give us wings or do they give us chains? Can they be chains? Um, and then also, how, when have we labeled someone else? And when mm-hmm. have they surprised us? Or how can we create in, environments in the workplace where people feel like they can bring their whole selves? Mm-hmm. And so conversations like that, that um, are so needed and wanted and mm-hmm. and and the and the workplace but then in the city in general we've had tremendous i mean really we were born out of work with the Atlanta Regional Commission that was the first real collaboration between just our our idea of using dinners to actually influence policy change at the regional level 
And so all the way back in 2015, we partnered with ARC, the Atlanta Regional Commission, to design with their Millennial Advisory Panel three big conversations, one on mobility, livability, and prosperity. And we, over the course of three months, had over 35 dinners just with these millennials, and they engaged more deeply into their counties and represented that they represented. And uh, what emerged were eight key themes um, that were that were reflected across no matter which dinner you attended, these themes seemed to emerge. So one was the need for a tran- regional transit vision. Another was for healthy food on every corner. Another was affordable housing. Um, you know, the kind, of, the kind of the same themes that we're hearing mm-hmm. now um, were it's the same ones we heard back then. And, but what we did was we could, cool, these are the themes. Now it's your time to roll up your sleeves and get to work. And so we invited them to join an action team on each of those uh, eight core themes. We gave them assignments. So they had to develop a point of view and write an op-ed as a group to use their voice to actually influence other perspectives. Then secondly, they had to interview other people using the design center process, right? To talk about the issues, make sure they're not reinventing the wheel and their recommendations. And, and then lastly, create a pitch to regional leaders where they actually got to be on stage presenting to the who's, the who's who of Atlanta, um, from commissioners to city council members to mayors, um, and, and philanthropic leaders from across the region. And there they got to present what their story, why this matters, why this issue matters to them and what they expect to do something about it. So what they want to do about it and what they want the region to do about it. And since then, all of those ideas have been incorporated into some form of policy change, whether one, uh, the one around transit turned into advanced Atlanta that has actually helped put critical referendums on the ballot, including the one that passed two years ago for the city of Atlanta for $2.8 billion referendum. Another one, we had two other teams up for, um, or help pass resolutions from affordable housing to even getting something passed in the state regarding um, even like sex and and rape kits that were, that were needed. And then lastly, we had five members run for office, including B. Nguyen, who um, took Stacey Abrams seat when she ran for governor and is the only Asian American female in the house of representatives. Here we go. Shout out to her. Yes. Um, I mean, I think like it's a really important and very interesting insight that you've just given, um, which I think, the listeners should really take heed of, which is actually what you did there was not simply create something that resulted in a change, right. but it's a sustainable change because right. my assumption is that these individuals that have now got engaged are not stepping away from that, no. but they are engaging more. And it's, Even more. It feels like it's almost like a multiplier effect. Exactly. Do you see that happening? Yes, yes, yes. And we have only just begun to start reaching back out to those who have participated in Civic Dance. We've hosted over, or the, we've had over 1,200 around the world. And we only know the impacts of just a few because that's when we ask. I actually just found out about um, uh, uh, the fact that two women met at a state of women civic dinner three years ago, and they ended up founding a company together called L- The Lola, which is all about creating a community for women and a co-working space and community to support women and women entrepreneurs. And so how cool. I only found yeah. out about them because they happened to be presenting after me. And they were like, oh, by the way, we met at a civic dinner. <laughs> and so those kinds of um, are like we're we know that what we're really trying to do is help awaken, help connect and help inspire the next generation of civic leaders. And if we can do that just by 
getting the right people in the room who care about the community, who care about the issues and want to make it better, then that's the, that's the hard work, the convening part. And then giving them the conversation tools and guidelines to really go deep and get get kind of beyond just the surface level uh, topics and conversations to build those, build trust, build a sense of camaraderie, and then give them a kind of gentle nudges about potential suggested actions that they could do moving forward. And then once they know that they have permission to change the world, once they know that they have the tools and the access to the right people that they can just go out and, and, and create what they want, then, then it's, that's, that's pure magic. So do you envisage that playing out in sort of uh, governments and how governments sort of get people's opin- opinions today. We, you know, we are, you know, I'm from the UK, you're from the States. Yeah. Both our countries are going through significant political Ooh. change at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we won't pass comment on what we think <laughs> about that. We can maybe have that conversation afterwards. But but the bigger question yeah. is really how do the governments hear the voice yeah. of the people and design countries, cities, and the fundamental aspects that are so important to life from education to work to the engagement to inclusiveness how do governments apply some of what you have shown and proven to be true Mm. what advice would you give them oh wow um first the advice i would give is really listen and when when listen create opportunities to really listen to what people have to say and i know it's tough because a lot of city leaders all they hear from people when they ask what what you know for feedback are complaints and i think that um anybody who receives a lot of negative feedback would be hesitant to ask what people think or really feel um cuz you know but but i think the way the way we've designed our conversations are really meant to kind of think about it the opposite way rather than asking for feedback or even just even line editing a plan that they've gotten just to check mark the box of, Oh, we asked the people and they said they like it. (laughs) Let's roll with it. But in reality, instead of like, let's get deeper, let's start to really listen to the concerns that they have at the root level and the whys, and then even just capturing that and reflecting it back to them to, Mm -hmm. to make sure that they know you heard them. That alone builds the sense of trust and transparency that is crucial for a working and functioning democracy. And I think um, we did this actually uh, when we first launched our platform officially after we built it through 2016 and 2017, we launched it in New Zealand, um, partnered with a, a group there called Action Station and worked with them. Um, we had 92 dinners across the country their winter, our summer, and uh, all around the values and visions for the future of New Zealand because they were about to go through their general election. Um, and it was phenomenal. People hosted in cafes and people's homes and uh, even had it translated uh, to include the Maori language. Mm-hmm. So we had the values that were represented their indigenous people. And it was ama- uh, just blown away the the feedback. And what we did was we captured, there was also like surveys as part of that to, to reach people who couldn't come to a dinner or community conversation. We had big events that there were, that they launched and, and managed. Um, but overall, then we reflected back here, here's what we heard here, are the key themes that emerged and created almost like a people's agenda and then asked the candidates to respond to the people's agenda. So it's the other way around. Here's what we want. What are you going to do for yes. us? How is you, how, what policies are you going to create that address our needs and our wants and our desires? And since then, that's, um, that 
that election is when Jacinda Ardern was elected prime minister. I was just going through in my head thinking like, well, it obviously had a massive impact if you just think about the reaction of the New Zealand prime minister. I'd like to um, hope that. I'd hope so. You have to believe that. You have to believe believe that there was like some (laughs) Some small part. Some small part. Even just knowing if we played some small part in that, it's just magical. She's such a badass and just a mother, a new mother as myself and relate to her on so many things. And I think that's the kind of leadership that we want and we need. And we, I think once we get real clear about what we as a society expect uh, just and what we want for our future, then our leaders need to and have to respond to that. And they have to live into that. Um, that's what the role is, servant leadership. They work for us. And they therefore, we need to tell them what we want. But there's right now no real clear mechanism to do that. There's no receiver, especially in the US right now. There's no federal entity that's receiving from people about what they want or what they hope. It, it, and Unfortunately, most of the mechanisms for community feedback are even closing. Those doors are, are being closed. And, um, and so what we want to do is provide cities, states, and even agencies or nonprofits with the tools to be able to, to create almost like a third party way of, of asking what people want and then being able to reflect that back to city leadership and also back to the people to, to create that, um, to simple, here are the key themes that emerged. Here's what you can do, and here are ways. Here's what the people want. <laughs> and it sounds like you're trying to do that with with what you have termed as the lovable cities, yeah. and you have a very ambitious goal. I think by 2020, is that yes. right? So talk a little bit about that because I think you know this again is really important. If you think about, you know, I put it in the context of businesses where I spend most of my time, but also with some governments that I've done some work with in the past, mm. and so. What you are trying to do in terms of the engagement and and to build a future, yeah, and it's really about future thinking. Right. Talk about what that. Is. Uh, by the way, I love the. I just love the name of it, right? Yeah. Lovable cities. You want to love the city. Yeah. You think about having some people ask you, like, do, do you like Atlanta? Like, right. do you like you know where you live and what yeah. you what you where you where you happen to have come from? And and you've kind of switched it and called it lovable, which lovable. is taking it to the next level. So talk a little bit about lovable cities. Yeah. So. Um, it's, well, it started, um, the idea came about because that's really the root of how Civic Dinners started. Back in 2014, Atlanta was easy to hate. It was a, it was a, we had just failed to pass a tease blast. We had just, um, which was like promised to unclog our roadways and transportation funding. We had uh, also had our public school system cheating scandals all over national news. And so it was a kind of a wah, wah, the mojo and energy of Atlanta was quite low. And so we felt um, there were a lot of people that genuinely loved Atlanta and wanted to make sure that they had a voice in creating the future that they knew was possible, the potential. It was like a, a bloom, a small flower that was about to bloom and it could go really well or it could go really wrong. So how could we actually have a voice and, and also change the narrative? Going back to knowing how important narrative is and how people believe or perceive things. How could we actually focus on the positives and not make as much room for complaining? So we decided to launch uh, a dinner party project and the whole, the conversations were threefold. What's your favorite secret spot? What do you love about Atlanta? What would you love about Atlanta? So what would you want to love? And then what role do you want to play in co-creating that lovable future? And it was such a hit. We ended up having like 60 dinners in six weeks with no marketing. We had no plan. This was just the questions itself. But we struck a chord with just a common 
common theme around, I love my city and I want to make it better, but I don't know how or don't know where to go. And so this was an invitation for anybody who loved Atlanta or even just was curious to meet others and get plugged in, whether you're a new, newcomer to come in or um, you've been here your whole life, but you see it changing and you want to have a voice in that. So we, it, it just, um, but what we learned from that was that they wanted to be heard by leaders. They wanted to make sure that their perspectives and voice were actually going to be listened to by the, the leadership. And they wanted to know the next steps. And so with the lovable city, it kind of hit me on the head on the way on the flight back from a conference in California where why don't we just go back to what, what really started this and invite other cities to just kick this conversation off in their own town and to see what magic might emerge. Cause when we, when we bring people back to focus in on a kind of more of a general conversation, most of ours are, or more topic centric, whether it's around transportation or education or sustainability, but even just opening up first with like an, in, like an introduction conversation around the love of your city and using that as a way to pull people in, find ways to just appreciate each other for their, for our commonalities mm-hmm. and our, and, and even find ways to communicate with others or even bump into others that you may not have seen or ever interacted with. And, and then from there, be able to consolidate and, and synthesize the key ideas and issues that might emerge or the, what do you, you know, how cool would it be to have a list of the top 10 things people love the most about Atlanta, yeah. right? We've never really done that before. Or what are the, what are the top things people would love to love? Like what, and what's on that list and how does it marry up with the priorities of the, of the city right now? Just to, just to reflect back what the people want. And so that's what we aim to do. And we want to, we do have a a crazy ambitious goal of trying to get a hundred cities across the U S initially. We've also, we just launched, uh, and, uh, with the global shapers, uh, national kind of, or the North American convening this past weekend and had over 30 cities be like, yes, we're in, we're going to figure this out and do it. Um, so October is going to be the month where we're really literally flooding restaurants and homes and parks, having the conversations around what do people love about their city and how can we, we then reflect back across individual cities to find what makes, because each city is unique and it has its own unique challenges, but there are also shared challenges across all cities that we can then roll out in 2020 some really amazing conversations around race, around gentrification, affordable housing, climate change, and all, and the future of water, the future of work, really national conversations that need to be had that we just right now don't have a mechanism for, for having convening or even receiving the responses and reflecting them back. And I love the idea that actually you're taking massive issues, like big issues for the world, but actually synthesizing them down and saying, let's start small. Let's just start the conversation first. And it will, as you say, kind of like flower will bloom. Mm -hmm. And then you can get into the much bigger topics, which if you start with, some people might be very nervous about, can I contribute to this? Or this is just too big a topic. So I really hope that we do Mm -hmm. see you not only reach that target, but like knock it out of the park. Now, I want to shift just a little bit of conversation because we've heard about what Civic Dinners is about and how you started and how you've grown. But, you know, I have to say it, you are a woman, you are a CEO, (laughs) you are in the technology field. Yeah, Like, you know, talk about negative press. We often get like that there aren't enough women we don't have any women in tech. You know, I've yeah. interviewed several women that are in tech who are CEOs, um, who are changing the world. But it's still, let's be honest, yeah. right? It's not the norm. Um, so, how do you convince you? And you talk about like you are the voice that you have a millennium voice, yeah. right? That's probably the group amongst others that we want to target. 
you said earlier on, you know, it's never too late. It's never too late. So how would you help other women think about becoming leaders either within the organisations that they're in today, Mm -hmm. becoming the CEO of their own business and or guiding others around it's possible? Yeah. Well, I would say just do it. (laughs) I I believe that... um, well, one of my favorite people in the whole world is Lynn Twist. Um, and she she's an incredible humanitarian working around the world, working in Africa to help end hunger. And she's also been a part of the Pachamama Alliance. Mm-hmm. I just butchered the pronunciation of that. Um, but they uh, she's done some work in the Amazon protecting the rainforest. And anyway, she, she tells this amazing prophecy of then where we are in society right now. And she said for uh, this prophecy talks about the bird of humanity. And apparently for centuries, the bird of humanity has been flying lopsided with one wing fully extended, but the other wing only partially extended being the feminine wing. So you've got the masculine wing fully extended to the right and the feminine wing only partially extended because of that, the masculine wing has had to flap violently in order to stay afloat and the feminine and, and so, but, and in response, as you know, it flies in circles um, because of the the imbalance. Mm-hmm. But apparently, we're living through the Sophia century, which is the is the century where the feminine wing finally fully extends itself, the masculine wing can relax, and the bird of humanity can finally soar. Do you hear that, guys? If you can just relax, we can fly. <laughs> as, we can fly, and actually, it could create a, a perfect balance, which yes. is actually what you want, exactly. right? It's you want to create that perfect balance. I just like if yeah. the lead, the listeners can't see this, but like I was almost like my body was almost like turning and like trying to like, see what does it feel like to be lopsided versus like you know balance. So like it's amazing what they can't see, yeah. but like yeah. visually, I hope that they are visualizing just the, mm. the the picture that you gave because I think it's a fantastic way to describe actually what's in play today but we are seeing changes we are seeing changes and that's what gives me hope there are more women stepping up to run for office and actually getting into office there are more women fighting for their role in leadership whether that's in the companies or stepping into our our own confidence and credibility and what we stand. and i follow i'm guilty of this my my weaknesses is not asking for the um for the limelight as much as my male counterparts do. My my male co- counterparts will just have an idea and get on NPR and then that's it. But for women, we often have to prove that it works. I have to come, you know, yeah, but with years of now, experience. Jen. I know. <laughs> I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you some tough love on that. I know. As I do to other um, yeah. colleagues and CEOs and friends. It's like, like we don't have to wait for it to be perfect. Right. We have to have the confidence and the courage to do what our fellow Exactly. Just get it out there and be, and just live in that. And, and, and my, one of my colleagues just say, you know, you've got the credibility, you've, you've earned it. You've got all the, the, the backing to do it. Now you just have to stand in it and not, not like just melt. (laughs) And for the the listeners that don't know, you were one of the 40 under 40 in Atlanta and have won a number of awards. Um, so not only are you following your passion, but you're creating a business with purpose, which is so important in today's world. Um, and trying to create this inclusive world, which, which is about civic engagement, which is about getting people involved of all nationalities, preferences, 
diversity of thinking mm-hmm. it's bringing that together and all generations right if we can yeah. even if we can only make small steps Definitely. that's a that's a significant step forward for uh, the world of tomorrow um, and for your your child that yes. will be growing up in in this world um for many years many years to come from now so let let's talk about some of you i'm going to come back to one two questions mm-hmm. before we end today because i think they're quite important questions one is like there must have been some challenges right we've heard some great stuff oh yeah but talk about some of the challenges because i think sometimes people when they think about being ceos that I think, well, you know, yeah. that's not my life. My life's not like that. I've got this challenge and that challenge. And yeah. I woke up today and I just thought, I'm going to like pack it all in. Right. So talk about that because there is a way through that adversity and it's yes. not, you know, accurate to think it doesn't exist. Yeah. It, um, oh my gosh. It, it, I think a founder, when you have an idea and you want, you want it real instantly you want it so bad that you want it ready to go and launch like in a month from now (laughs) and i think the reality of um what i've had to come like kind of just admit in it and myself is that my sense of urgency um can only be extended through 12 24 hours a day um that i have that i have to work with and i can control myself and then but then the society just yeah what's the right word to say this but you have you have to kind of work within the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. And I would say even like, I didn't just jump into this. I let it be a slow burn from like an idea to a spark to kind of catch fire a little bit and just to kind of test it out, fan the flame here and there, pilot it. We, we tried it out in different ways. And I held on to my day job um, when working at a design firm for five years before knowing that I was learning the skills that I would need to run a company eventually. Um, but really trying to absorb anything that I could learn potentially in the future. And so from there, once I had enough side hustle going, I was just going to say that word. Yeah. I'm so pleased I, that I know yes. it now. I'd like for every opportunity I can bring it in. Yes. <laughs> totally. So when I, um, and I, I started AHA Strategy, which was a social innovation design company that was, um, mostly meant to work with nonprofits and local governments on the side just to help them tell their stories and from a brand perspective. And so I kind of got my feet wet and just managing clients on the side and running, um, making sure that I was able to a provide a service that I could run on my own or pull in other people and perspectives initially. So I was able to still keep my security and my uh, roof over my head and, uh, be able to pay off my student loans <laughs> of my current job, which I loved, but then also being able to flex other skills and other muscles w- and develop new skills that I knew I would need if I was going to be running my own company. And then once I got comfortable where I could let go, and jump in, um, I kind of just started really nurturing the relationships that I had first off. I grew organically through referrals or word of mouth through some of my clients. I know that, that for consulting, that works pretty well for other companies. Marketing is essential, um, but I didn't have any marketing when I first started. And then from there, word of mouth started spreading. And then through different projects, I learned different things. So Civic Dinners really spun out of work that I had started with AHA Strategy, working with Elena Regional Commission, and just exploring and following that curiosity. Like whatever, I remember it was it was um, after I got married in 2016. My husband and I had a bike date, and we strolled and and he asked me a question because we wanted to start a family. We knew that was our next big step, you know, get married, check, buy a house, check. Uh, now it's time to start a family. What are we going to do? Um, 
And so as we're thinking about timeline, we knew we would give ourselves about two years. So this is three and a half years ago. And I was like, you know what? Based on what we learned from the Millennial Advisory Panel, I want to see, I want to make this thing fly. I really want to pour everything I can into building this. And he's like, let's do it. So he's been with me the whole time. I've been learning from him. He's also an entrepreneur in the tech space as well. And lent me, I borrowed his developer at cost internally. And we were very resourceful in covering our costs and kind of keeping things going. But the timeline, of course, looking out in 2016, when the election happened, I was devastated because I was like, if this existed now, we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> and I felt this sense of real sadness and grief and urgency around like, I have to pour everything into this now. And I have to make like the time is now and I need to accelerate and get this together. So I started signing up for incubators and accelerators that were free and accessible in Atlanta. Um, anybody that would accept me, I was in <laughs> and was just trying to absorb and learn how to manage a team. I'd never done that before. How to grow, how to make create enterprise relationships, how to create systems and infrastructures that I could scale. Um, because I knew that this work couldn't just be in Atlanta. It had to really open its wings and become a system that others could use. And as we learned from the Millennial Advisory Panel, we soon got, after winning several awards for that process, other regions and nonprofits started reaching out saying, how do we use dinners to engage our alumni, our, our members, our students, our, our, you name it, and citizens, residents, um, and just community members. So we knew we had, we had found something. It was just a matter of building the technology that would help support it and really working with the right clients to help build it with them for them. And so Atlanta Regional Commission kind of became our founding partner mm -hmm. in this. We got to test a lot of things with them, make sure that it was actually something that people wanted and would buy and would reuse and it would be useful for them. So designing tools with them for them. And it took way longer than I had ever imagined. But now we're at finally at a point where we know we've got a system, a process and a platform that works and gets real results. And now we're ready to bring it to other cities around the world. I think there's so many nuggets of, of great advice and learnings for anybody listening to that and, and hearing about your experience of how you've kind of taken this business, this idea, and really brought it to fruition and recognising that there's still so much more um, to do. You have inspired me beyond belief. Oh. I'm sure that we will continue this conversation. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do have to bring this podcast to close. But those anybody that's listening internationally here in Atlanta, anywhere in the U.S., uh, anywhere in the world, in fact, if they want to know about you, Jen, yes. what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I'd say, well, first, follow us on all social media. We have um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's at Civic Dinners with an S, so Civic Dinners. And then uh, if you want to reach out, if you want to learn more, if you want to bring us to your city, we'd love to um, to join you in this work. And so you can email us at hello at civicdinners.com. Okay, great. And if you want to hear more about Dare Worldwide, you can find out about Dare Worldwide on www.dareworldwide.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Rita underscore Trahan. And of course, if you listen to Daring 2, the podcast, you'll get to hear Jen, lots of other people. But most importantly, you'll get to hear from entrepreneurs and CEOs who are really daring to change the world. Thank you so much, Thank Jen. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the conversation? Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of Daring 2. Also, check out our website, dareworldwide.com, for some great resources around business in general, leadership, and how to bring about change. See you next time.